During the first hour, I announced that I will be completing the first hour series on 1 Corinthians probably in the next month or so, which time I'm going to start a short series on the, uh, on the Bible. How did we get it? How can we know we can trust it? You know, in light of a lot of the spurious claims and ridiculous claims that are made in the book, um, uh, the Da Vinci Code and other books of that kind that have been coming out, there's a tremendous challenge not only on the person of who Christ is, but on whether this is our Bible. And there's these claims that there are other Bibles and other books that were uh, just overlooked and all kinds of stuff that is, if you know any history, if you know anything about the early church, you know this stuff is just nonsense. It is just not even worth paying attention to. It's just the stuff fiction writers spin tales out of and nothing more. Yet I'm amazed because Christians just aren't taught and they don't learn it that um, people don't understand this. And so many people are raising questions today. So I definitely want to address this. And so we'll have a series on the Bible, how we know we can trust it, how we got it, things of that nature. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to make sure that uh, we're in fellowship with the Lord, ready to study His Word. Scripture teaches us that uh, salvation is a free gift by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. All we have to do to obtain salvation is to put our faith alone in Christ alone. But as we live our Christian life, we still sin. Whenever we sin, it causes a a breach of fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but there is a breaking in fellowship. We lose the filling of the Spirit. We stop walking by the Spirit, Scripture says. The way to recover is simple, still based on grace, based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We simply admit to God our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this means that we simply had, in silent prayer, uh, in the privacy of our priesthood, simply admit or acknowledge to God the sins that we've committed. We're instantly forgiven, cleansed, restored to fellowship. We return back to what is called uh, experiential holiness or sanctification, a position from which we can grow. The Holy Spirit teaches us, matures us, so that we can advance in our spiritual life. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for all that you have provided for us in our salvation, that we can have an eternal relationship with you and eternal life simply based on the completed work of Christ on the cross, that he died for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. There is nothing for us to do. It is a free gift. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have revealed your will to us in your word, that you have preserved this down through the centuries, and that we can have confidence in the veracity of your word. Father, we pray that as we study it, you would challenge us with the things that we study and that we would be responsive to 
what your word teaches. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to first, or excuse me, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And we continue our study in the opening section of the book of Revelation. It's been a couple of weeks since uh, we were in our study, so we'll take some time to review. Revelation was written by the Apostle John in approximately 95 A.D. He was in exile, in prison actually, on a penal colony on the island of Patmos, which is a small island in the Aegean off the coast of modern Turkey or Asia Minor. I left last time by telling you I was going on a fact-finding mission and would be uh, going to Patmos and Ephesus on the trip, which we did, and I will be including various uh, various pictures as we go through our our study. This is the area that we're talking about on the overhead. This area over here is the area of uh, of Greece in between the Aegean Sea and then over here the western coast of modern Turkey. In the ancient world, this was known as Asia Minor, and this province on the western shore was the Roman proconsular province of Asia. This island right here, uh, just off the coast, was the island of Patmos, and this was where John was located when he received This revelation. Beginning in verse 1, we see that the title of the book is given, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a revelation about Jesus Christ. I mean, this doesn't mean it's a revelation about Christ. We studied this in the Greek. It's a subjective genitive. It's Jesus Christ's disclosure to John. Although it focuses on Jesus Christ as the coming king, and coming judge, and that is a major theme. And this, uh, this book emphasizes the person of Christ in a unique way in His glory and magnificence. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave Him, that is, God the Father, gave Him to disclose to His servants things which must quickly take place. And I pointed out that what that means is that once the prophecy dominoes begin to fall, as it were, that these events will fall rapidly and in order. So that's what this means. It doesn't mean from the viewpoint of John writing in 95 A.D. that these, are, these events were right around the corner. But it has the idea that once they begin to take place, they will take place quickly or in short order. And so we read, and he sent, that is, Jesus Christ, having received this from God, sent, communicated it by sending, literally, that is the corrected translation, and he communicated it by sending his angel to his slave or servant John. So Jesus Christ uses an angel in the process of communicating the revelation. This is typical of communicating revelation throughout the ages. There were angels present on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. So it's communicated uh, by an angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. So this is John's uh, self-witness here that he is going to disclose everything that has been revealed to him by Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, we have a blessing, a special blessing that is given to, first of all, those who read. Now, this isn't simply the believer who sits down and opens up his Bible and reads the book of Revelation with little, if any, comprehension. This is a special word, anagonosko, which has to do with uh, teaching the word, reading it, uh, as it were, in the ancient world, they read this out loud to the congregation. So it's not just privately, silently reading it, but reading it out loud with explanation. What we would say today is the province of the pastor teacher who is giving an expositional teaching of the Word of God. So this is a blessing for the pastor who teaches the Word, the, the book of Revelation, and those who hear the words 
of this prophecy, that is, a congregation who hears, not just having their um, auditory nerves stimulated, but listen with understanding, comprehension, and then keeping it, keeping those things which are written in it for explanation, for the time is near. And this is a, a warning that these events will soon take place. The time is near. Be ready. Be prepared. And the, the theme that you get in Revelation is that judgment is coming. The, the tribulation period itself is a time of worldwide judgment. It is yet future. We are not in the tribulation. It did not uh, take place in the first century as, as uh, some would uh, have it today. But these events, which are between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19, are yet future. But the time is coming. There will be judgment. There will be accountability. And there is this warning in the book. And there's a sense of urgency from John that the time is near. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out before we go on is have to do with style. One of the things we note is in verse 2, there are three statements. John is the one who bore witness to the Word of God, the testimony of Christ, and all things that he saw. Three things. John is very fond of triplets in uh, this uh, book. He uses this many times, three things, and he links them together. Notice he says he bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. And then he says, blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Again, three things. Those who read expositionally, those who hear, and those who keep. Again, a triplet linked by the Greek uh, conjunction chi or and. Now, this is going to be an important word. We don't pay much attention to these little words sometimes when we study the Bible. But they are crucial in exegesis. I had a... Uh, excellent Greek professor at Dallas Seminary who often said the most important elements of exegesis are to pay attention to the small words, the, the connectives, the prepositions, the uh, c- conjunctions. And this word and, the Greek word chi, is used some 1,128 times in the book of Revelation. It's only used about 9,100 times in the whole New Testament. Think of that. Out of the 27 books of the New Testament, one out of every ten uses of the word chi is in Revelation. Now, why is that important? It gives a sense of movement. This happens, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. It's, it's a, it's a, it indicates movement, energy. Uh, John is excited about what's happening, and this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. It's, it's somewhat reminiscent of the style of Mark. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, he says, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. If you read the, sit down and read the whole Gospel of Mark, you'll be out of breath by the time you finish. Because he is telling it as if this happens and this and this. Same thing with uh, Revelation. So the first three verses are our prologue to Revelation. Then, in, starting in verse 4, we have our, our greeting. John says, John, and here he the first of his identifications of, of himself as the author, John. This is, as we've studied, the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved. He is in advanced age now in his early 80s. Uh, he lived to the end of the first century, maybe into the second century. We don't know exactly when he died. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And these seven churches are identified when we come down to verse uh, 11. Verse 11, we're told that the list, the Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, or Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven churches are all located in the Roman province of Asia. It was called a proconsular province because it was ruled by a uh, proconsul. It was established in 27 BC under Augustus as a senatorial uh, province. Originally, this area had been part of the kingdom of Pergamum, and when King Attalus III died in 133 BC, 
he bequeathed this area to the Romans. It included the regions of Mycia, Lydia, Caria, and Phrygia. It had been part of the Roman kingdom, or excuse me, part of the kingdom of Pergamum, which is located right here. I have a little better map here. Pergamum is located here some uh, 150 miles or so north of Ephesus. And Pergamum was a major city at that time, and in competition with Ephesus as one of the key cities of this area. In fact, Pergamum was considered the capital of the province of Asia until sometime into the latter part of the first century. It was probably still the capital of Asia when Paul was in Ephesus, but by the time John is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesus had become the capital uh, city of Asia. I was uh, somewhat surprised when I was on this trip to learn that the population of Ephesus at the end of the first century was between 200 and 250,000. As we get into a study of Ephesus, the first letter of the seven churches is to Ephesus. Uh, we will go through some of the uh, pictures that I have from the trip uh, showing the uh, archaeological remains in Ephesus today. It was a fantastic city. It was the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana, which is what caused a problem during Paul's visit. It was also the site of one of the uh, largest theaters in the ancient world, which is still there. Just remarkable how they built these these outdoor theaters, and it was just enormous. But the acoustics are perfect. You can stand in the middle of the stage, and I would send Pam up to the uh, where I could barely see her up in the nosebleed section, and I would just barely whisper, and she could hear me. Just perfect acoustics. So, and that was true. We also went to a, uh, I guess it was a theater in in Philippi or Philippi. But these, this is the setting for uh, the book of Revelation. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, last time I noted that we have a uh, interesting problem in verse, the second part of verse four, and that's the identification of who this is from. John says in verse four. Grace and peace to you, and I pointed our grace to you and peace, and I pointed out that this was a standard Pauline greeting that he took the common greeting of the day, grace, uh, which was the Greek greeting. He changed to um, uh, changed to charis from karain, emphasizing that the source of everything in the life of the believer is the grace of God. God is the one who gives this to us freely based on his own character. If God willed it, the entire universe would vaporize in, a, in an instant. But God's grace is given to all, believer and unbeliever. That is called common grace. His saving grace is extended to believers uh, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and grace for living the Christian life is extended to all believers. And so Paul basically coined this greeting, and grace is the foundation, and peace is the consequence. Peace is the uh, sense of contentment, tranquility, stability that the believer has when he is walking with the Lord, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, learning and applying Bible doctrine on a consistent Basis. So John appropriates this greeting and says, Grace to you and peace. Now, what's interesting here that we have to note is the structure, the grammatical structure of this verse. He is going to use the preposition apo, which is translated from and means from the ultimate source of, three times. This indicates that there are three distinct sources of this grace and peace. Now, notice, grace and peace come only from whom? They come only from God. You can't get grace and peace from a creature. Can't come from an angel. Can't come from a human being. So, first of all, we have to we will note that that this is going to come from God. But which person of the Trinity are we talking about here? 
because the first person is identified as from him who is and who was and who is to come. And last time I took note of the particular uh, grammatical uh, uh, uniqueness of this phrase, that it's we have the use of two participles, uh, the one who is and the one who is to come are both participles, uh, in conjunction with the definite article, but in the middle you have the phrase, the one who was, and that is a definite article plus a finite verb, which is unusual. But we must understand this as a title for someone. And there are some who think that this is Jesus Christ. If you flip over to verse 8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, and it should read, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, because this speaker identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, many people think it just sort of a knee-jerk reaction that this is Jesus Christ, because in verse 11, Jesus Christ appears to John and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It would be as if an English speaker would say, I am the A to the Z. I am the beginning and the end. Well, this is true of, of every member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have to pay attention to usage. And when we have this phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, in the book of Revelation, it refers to God the Father, especially when it is followed by the uh, word Ponto Crator, the Almighty. Only God the Father is referred to as the Almighty in the book of Revelation. Now, I was reading a very good commentator by one of the uh, well-trained scholars who went, went along on this uh, trip to, uh, F, to uh, Greece and Turkey that we just returned from. And I've known him, uh, not real well, but I've known him for several years. And at the beginning of the trip, we had a few moments together, and I asked him, I said, you know, I was just reading through your commentary, and I noticed that you identified the phrase who was and who is and who is to come as Jesus Christ. I said, I, I want to challenge that uh, for these reasons. I think that's a title for God the Father. And, you know, we just had a brief conversation. It wasn't more than a minute. And he said, well, I'll take a look at it. And just a real sign of the man's uh, genuine humility, about five days later, he happened to be walking by my table at dinner, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I had a chance to look at that the other day, and you're absolutely right. That's a title for God the Father. I've got to send a letter to the publisher so they get that straightened out the next printing. And um, you have to pay attention to details here. There are so many titles that go to both Father, well, not both, but go to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because they are identical in essence that you have to make sure that you are correctly identifying these phrases. This is a greeting that comes from the Trinity. It is a Trinitarian greeting, and this is indicated again by the use of this word, and it is from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, which is clearly the Holy Spirit, as we saw last time, and from Jesus Christ. So if the third person is Jesus Christ, and the second mention is the Holy Spirit, the first must be God the Father. So this is what we covered last time, that the first phrase, He who is and who was and who is to come, is a term relating to God the Father and is reminiscent of the title, of the name that God uses for Himself that He revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He says, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. Now, in the Hebrew, this is the word Yah, or Yahweh, and it's designated by four letters in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, sometimes written J-H-V-H, which is where we get the idea for Jehovah. This is called the sacred four letters of the sacred tetragrammaton, and it derives from the Hebrew verb Hayah, H-A-Y-A-H. And Hayah is the Hebrew word or the verb to be. And so it means, I am, I am the one who is, I am the self-existing one. 
So in Revelation 1, 4 through 5, you have the designation, the one who is. This is the present active participle, the one who is continually existing at present time. The one who was, and I pointed out last time that in Greek there's no past tense participle, so that could convey this. So Paul, I mean, so John had to basically invent the grammar here, and he used a definite article plus the finite imperfect tense of the verb to be, the Greek verb to be, ami, uh, the one who continually was existing. This is the same idea that we saw in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three times you have the English word was translating the uh, present, I mean the imperfect active indicative of ami. So the, the who is is the present Existence who continually existed in past time, translated who was, and who is to come. And I said this refers to the Father because no man has seen God the Father at any time. The, the only begotten of the Father has explained Him, John 1.18. We will see the Father's face, though, in eternity future in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and Revelation 22. Verses 3 and 4 both indicate that that is future. So the book ends with us seeing the presence of the Father. Then, with the second title, the seven spirits who are before His throne. We, we studied this last time, and we noted that the seven spirits are, are frequently ref, made reference to uh, Isaiah 11.2. But there's only six titles of the Spirit in Isaiah 11:2, and uh, the best reference goes to Zechariah 12:1 through 10, which is imagery used again in Revelation, in Revelation chapter uh, four, in Revelation chapter five for the for the Holy Spirit, indicating His fullness and His power. So the seven spirits indicates the fullness of His presence and power. Uh, that is the power of the Holy Spirit, who are before His throne. Now, who does the His refer to? The His refers back to God the Father. Jesus Christ doesn't have a throne in the book of Revelation. He is not presently sitting on His throne. And we see this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And there we have a promise to Him who overcomes, Jesus says, I will grant to sit with me, that is Jesus Christ, on my throne. Don't stop there. See, that's yet future. I will grant this in the future that he will sit with me on my throne. And then Jesus goes on to say, as I also overcame and what? Sat down with my father on his throne. See, where is Jesus today? is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is called, in theology, the session of Jesus Christ from the Latin word sessiona, meaning to be seated. He is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is not on His own throne yet. He does not receive His throne. He does not activate His title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords until He is crowned and returns at the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Then He sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and then He sits on His throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Revelation 3.21 indicates that the uh, his throne is yet future. So when we read the seven spirits who are before his throne, that throne must refer to the throne of God the Father, the first one mentioned. And then we come to our study this morning, verse 5, or actually the first part of, uh, of the fifth verse. And this is the designation to Jesus Christ. And essentially in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6, we have a nutshell Christology. Now, we just finished a lengthy study of what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what the term Christology means. It's a technical theological term for the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But... And verses uh, 5 and 6, we have a nutshell Christology that wraps around two triplets. 
So John is emphasizing this through these two triplets. First of all, he says Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's the first triplet. Then he gives a a, a designation to him, a dedication to Jesus, to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. So that's the second triplet. Now we'll just get the first one covered today because this summarizes in a nutshell the career of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. His past ministry at the first advent, his present ministry during his session uh, in heaven, and his future ministry at the uh, at the second coming when he rules as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It begins with the Greek word and, which as I said earlier is used 1128 times in the book of Revelation, which gives a tremendous sense of movement in the book. It's this and then this and then this and then that. So we, the grace and peace extend from the three members of the Trinity. They are co-equal. So it equally comes from them, from the Father who is called the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Holy Spirit. Notice this can't be an angel. Some people want to um, make the seven spirits who are before his throne angels. But that can't be because of this designation of Apa Kai, Apa Kai, from, and, or excuse me, Kai Apa, Kai Apa, and from, and from, that uh, it equates these three people and they're each deity. Grace and peace can only come from deity, can't come from angels. So the third person from whom grace and peace derive is Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, and he is, he is designated by these titles. Now there are Numerous titles for Jesus Christ given in the book of Revelation. He is designated as the Lamb. That is John's favorite title. Some 28 times he is designated as the Lamb. He is called Jesus Christ. He's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called the, fa- the titles that we have here and numerous other titles, which we will see as we go through um, as we go through the book of Revelation. The first title, The Faithful Witness, focuses on his first advent. He is the faithful uh, witness. This is the Greek phrase, hamartus hapistos. The main noun here is martus. He's the witness. The word martus in Greek is a word that uh, is the basis for our word uh, martyr. And a martyr in English is one who uh, gives his life for something. But originally the word meant in Greek a witness. The second phrase, hapistos, is used in the as an adjective in the second attributive position indicating uh, a, a modifier of the, the, the head noun witness. He is the faithful witness, pistos. He is the dependable uh, witness. And this refers to uh, what was accomplished during Jesus Christ's life and ministry during the first advent. It indicates, for one thing, his uh, deity. He is, in Lamentations 3.21 through 23 in the Old Testament, we're told, This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. That is, confident expectation, confident stability. This I recall to mind indicates the fact that doctrine must be recalled. It's stored in our soul by the Holy Spirit, and He is the one who reminds us of doctrine. But we have to recall that. We have to focus. When the Holy Spirit brings that to our attention, we have to bring it out, as it were, into the open and focus our attention on those principles 
and on those promises. As a result of focusing on those principles and promises, it changes our mental attitude. It changes our focus. As a result of recalling pertinent doctrine, we therefore have confidence. That's the main idea of both the Hebrew word and the Greek word. We have confidence in the midst of difficulty. Confidence in the midst of toil. This is part of the witness of Jesus at the first advent. He lived his life and his humanity in dependence on the Holy Spirit. We studied that he pioneered the spiritual life that that we utilize in the church age. He was the first uh, person in human history to be indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and to be filled by God the Holy Spirit as the basis for his spiritual life. Now, in the Old Testament, there were believers who were had various manifestations of the Holy Spirit who came upon them, and, and the word filling is used in some places, but it wasn't for their spiritual life. It was always in relationship to their function as leaders in Israel, in the uh, theocratic kingdom, the prophets in relationship to their giving of revelation, to the kings such as Saul and David in relation to their leadership, to the builders of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, in relation to the skill and the uh, abilities to to uh, uh, construct the furniture in the ark and to make all of the pieces of, of uh, jewelry in the breastplate of the high priest, uh, that they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't for their spiritual life and spiritual growth. That doesn't happen until the... Uh, first advent with Jesus Christ, and as a faithful witness, he pioneered that for us. He showed us that in, no matter how unjustly we may be treated, no matter how harshly we may be reviled, no matter how bitterly we may be rejected, we can have peace, stability, happiness uh, based on our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And though Jesus Christ was bitterly reviled and rejected, culminating in his crucifixion, he was uh, still had perfect happiness and perfect peace. That's based on recalling doctrine. Therefore, we have confidence, no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter what may be going on in your life, you have confidence. The, and the principle is then given in verse 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Now that word translated loving kindnesses is the Hebrew word chesed. We would transliterate that C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And this is a key word in the Old Testament for God's grace and His love, His faithfulness, and His loyalty. All of those ideas are wrapped up in chesed. It's not simply love. It's not simply grace, but His loyal, faithful love. His, His faithful love to His covenant that He had made with Israel. His gracious love, the Lord's gracious, loyal, faithful love, never ceases. It never stops. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the text goes on to say, because His compassions fail not. No matter how much we may fail Him, no matter how much we may disappoint Him, His mercy never ceases. His compassions never fail. He is always the same. In fact, verse 23 says, They are new every morning, or they are renewed every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is the basis for the hymn that we sing. So the attribute of faithfulness is always associated with God. It is part of His immutability. He never, ever changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus was the faithful witness he is a witness, he says in John 8:18, 8, uh, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. He is his life was a witness to the Father. And as a result of that, his life was taken from him. So that in John 10:18, he says, "No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again." This command I have received from my Father. So he is a witness. He is a witness to the character of the Father. He is a witness to his love. He is a witness to the spiritual life. 
And he is faithful in this. 1 Corinthians 1.9, again, we have the emphasis on faithfulness as an attribute of God. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So again, this is an attribute of deity. So when we read in Revelation 1.5 that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, it brings to our mind an attribute of deity. And then in Revelation 19.11, when he returns at the second advent, John sees him and says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this is another title for Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true. Revelation 19.11 Now when we read this uh, title that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, this doesn't just come out out of thin air. John just doesn't manufacture this out of whole cloth, as it were. But as we'll see again and again and again in our study of Revelation, that the titles, the names, the events, the symbolism that we see in Revelation is not isolated. We don't have to just contemplate our navel to try to figure out what this means. But these names and symbols all have their roots in Old Testament uh, passages, Old Testament terminology, and Old Testament uh, images. For example, this title, both the title Faithful Witness and the title Firstborn, have their roots in the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant was God's promise to David that one of his descendants would reign eternally on David's throne, that God would give David an eternal dynasty. And this is why Jesus Christ is called the Son of David, is that He is the one who will fulfill that covenant. He is the one who will sit on the physical throne of David in Jerusalem to rule and reign forever. Psalm 89 was a psalm that was a meditation on the Davidic covenant, a contemplation. As the writer thought about the Davidic covenant, that he wrote this praise hymn to God. In Psalm 89, verse 36, he writes, His seed shall endure forever. That is, the descendant, the, this Davidic descendant, who of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, indicating that his uh, dynasty would be forever. Verse 37, And it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the what? Faithful witness in the sky. So you see this terminology, faithful witness, doesn't just pop up in Revelation, but it has its roots in the Davidic covenant and Psalm 89.37. See, these are just those little tidbits you come up with in Scripture that show that this isn't something that a bunch of people wrote in different places as they were... uh, uh, you know, moved by, by whatever moved them. You know, there is a, there, there, there's a, a consistency in the scripture that even when you have a psalm written about a thousand BC and the book of Revelation written about 95 AD, that there is complete consistency here. And this is a testimony to the truthfulness and the veracity of God's word. This isn't something that was written by man to record his religious experiences, but this is the disclosure of God to men about himself. This is absolute truth. This is more certain than anything uh, in your life. It is more certain than the realities of your birth certificate. You can count on this more than you can count on anything else in life. So the concept of Jesus being the faithful witness goes back to and connects him to the promised seed of David. The second title is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead, and in Greek that reads ha prototakos ton nekron, 
the first word, ha prototakos, is the word translated firstborn or the preeminent one. It is not simply first in time, but first in quality. He is the preeminent one out from, and it is a genitive construction indicating the source, out from the dead. It is a plural genitive, which is the standard way in which this is expressed throughout the Scripture, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead ones. It's sort of a collective noun indicating all of those who are dead and all of those who are buried. We studied this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when we read the same verbiage about him being uh, resurrected from the dead ones. This terminology, firstborn from the dead, is also found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. There we read, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's our phrase, the firstborn from the dead. It is slightly different here than in, uh, in Revelation, for it adds the preposition ek. He is the firstborn out from ek, the dead. It, uh, semantically it's the same. But the addition of the preposition just emphasizes the idea of separation that you have, that he is out from the dead ones. But this is the main idea through Scripture. This resurrection of Jesus Christ indicates God's approval of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that he died spiritually on our behalf. See, the the sacrifice that Christ gave on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins wasn't his physical death. It was his spiritual death. We'll cover this next time uh, when we get to the next phrase, the, or the phrase uh, dealing with him washing us from our sins by his own blood. That terminology stresses the spiritual substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, we've studied again and again that the penalty of sin is spiritual death. Genesis 2.17, In the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. It's not physical death. Adam did not die for another 930 years. God said, In the day that you eat of the tree, you will die. He died spiritually. That was the penalty for uh, sin. Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness covered the face of the earth and God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ all of the sins of mankind. This is when Jesus Christ cried out or screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus did not become a personal sinner. He is still in hypostatic union, perfectly righteous. But he is, he is imputed judicially our sins. He doesn't become a sinner experientially, but he becomes sin judicially. Again and again in Scripture, we have to watch this whole theme of the, of, of the Supreme Court of Heaven and justice, that sin is, uh, is a judicial penalty, and that is spiritual death that Jesus Christ is judged by God the Father, uh, that, that the Father is viewed as the judge, that the righteous judge, Jesus Christ is called the righteous judge at His return, that there is this, this imagery of the courtroom that is laid over all of human history. And so Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sins, and then He died physically. Now, why did He have to die physically? Couldn't He have just... Uh, finished paying for our sins and then gotten off the cross? Well, no, because he other things had to be accomplished. He had to die physically so that he could demonstrate that the greatest consequence of sin, which is physical death, was conquered by the payment of penalty. This is what we just studied in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, that that with the resurrection and, and ultimately uh, with Christ's resurrection, which was the first fruits, of resurrection according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that necessitates all the other uh, resurrections. We saw that first fruits means that the first part of the harvest was a guarantee of the rest of the harvest. So that Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of the 
remainder of the resurrection. And that when the last resurrection uh, is completed, when the last believer is raised from the dead and given a resurrection body, then we will read, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about verse 56. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so this victory is accomplished and signified by Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is why the resurrection is part of the foundation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that we believe that we delivered to you that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried and rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. Uh, Acts 26, 23. Uh, we read that the Christ would suffer. This was what was prophesied in the Old Testament. That He would be the first to rise from the, uh, first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Acts 26, 23. Romans 1, 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 2.29 and following, Peter emphasizes this doctrine in his uh, first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that is both dead and buried, in, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, we can go right over to David's tomb and we know that his corpse is still in the tomb. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Whose throne? David's throne. That's the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7, uh, Psalm 89. Acts 2.31. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So we saw this morning that corruption cannot inherit incorruption. So there was a resurrection. And this Jesus, Acts 2.32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. This is the foundation for the gospel. Then we come to the third title given to Jesus in Revelation 1.5. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. The Greek reads ha-archon, ton, basileon. So the first phrase, ha-archon, is the word for ruler. This was a word that goes back to classical, uh, the classical Greek period in the 5th, 5th century B.C. The head of the Athenian state was called the archon. He's the ruler. It's from the uh, root arche, meaning first or beginning, the preeminent one. So it came to mean the ruler, the dictator, the um, one in ultimate authority in Athens. So here it now means the ruler, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who rules over all the political powers of the earth. And what we will see is that Jesus Christ controls history And as we get into Revelation 2 and 3, studying the seven letters to the seven churches, we'll see that these represent various trends, various cycles of history that play out down through the ages, that that these churches aren't successive characteristics of the church age, although many people try to make that case. These churches represent various trends. You can find types of these churches all over the world today. And these seven churches were chosen because they would represent the different kinds of or patterns of churches down through church, church history. So we'll study those cycles. But even as we go through those cycles, and even today as we are in a time where we see the church in America primarily in a state of apostasy, there are still many churches that teach the truth, many churches that are grounded in the Word of God. But many Christians today are just negative. They, they've given up. They, they, unlike the, uh, the exhortation of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, they've refused to be steadfast and immovable. They've just given up. They're, they're glad they're saved, but they're not going to live the Christian life because it's too much trouble. 
Uh, there's, there's too much fun to be had in the world. After all, what, uh, uh, you know, what, what am I going to lose? I know I'm saved, so, so I'm just going to enjoy my life today. And why go through all this effort to, to be at church all the time and to, to sacrifice and to get involved in Christian service when all, I'm still going to end up in heaven? Uh, Jesus Christ controls history. These people are going to uh, experience tremendous discipline in their Christian life. They're going to go through all kinds of problems. And as, as I believe, as we go through some hard times in the next few years in this country, uh, especially if uh, we, the, the election does not go in a positive direction this fall, we are going to see some real trauma in this country. If, we, if this nation decides to elect uh, two socialists to the highest two offices in this land, then you haven't seen economic collapse. You will see tremendous economic collapse if they make it in. And not only that, they don't have the uh, nerve, they don't have the stamina, they don't have the moral courage to take a stand against the terrorism that's going on today. One of the reasons that our president is being assaulted by imbeciles today who don't know any better. Not, that doesn't mean he hasn't made mistakes. There are many things that he's done I don't agree with. But he has had the moral courage to stand up and say something is absolutely right. And this is so foreign to the thinking of sec- the secular mentality in Europe and the secular mentality of Hollywood, the secular mentality of the news media, that it absolutely galls them because they don't believe in any absolutes except whatever they want to do. And if you do not have leaders that have the vision, the courage, the moral courage to stand up and say that something is right, that there is evil in, a, in this world, that there are evil doers in this world, then the leaders that you have that cave in to moral relativism will lead their nations into collapse. This has been the trend since the collapse of the Roman Empire almost uh, 1,500, 1,600 years ago. And it will continue. Jesus Christ, though, controls history, and this is the message of hope in this book, is that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. See, and despite all of the horrors that we're going to see in Revelation, despite all of the judgments poured out on the earth, the one thing that stands out again and again and again is the person of Jesus Christ. Constantly we're going to be brought back to a vision of who Jesus Christ is, and that brings stability in the midst of crisis. And this title, of course, Firstborn of the Dead, also comes out of Psalm 89, the Davidic uh, meditation on the Davidic covenant. In Psalm 89:27, we read, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is all of these things by virtue of what he accomplished. He, as we will see in in Revelation 4, is worthy because he is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, that we can have eternal life. So we have looked at the first triplet in verse 5, and next time we'll come back and look at the dedication, which gives us a second triplet, again focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to once again come face to face with the, the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ, of who he is, and that he is the one who is deserving of all honor and glory and praise and dominion. Father, we thank you that he is the one who died on the cross for our sins, that we have a perfect Savior, a Savior who perfectly accomplished our salvation, that it is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but it is dependent exclusively on Jesus Christ, on what he did on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never uh, trusted in Christ as your Savior, perhaps you're uncertain and unsure of your eternal destiny. The Scripture says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust Him, rely upon His finished work on the cross, then at that instant you are justified. You are born again. You receive eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. 
It is not based on who you are or what you've done. It's not based on your church involvement, church attendance. It's not based on any moral behavior or lack of morality in your life. It is based on Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So that right now, right where you sit, you can make certain what your eternal destiny is, simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied, that we may keep our focus on Jesus Christ, who is the one who loves us and washed us from our sins and who has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.